Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You'll also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Al Bernstein here with the second of our podcast slash shows uh, called Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. We're happy that you joined us for this episode. I think it's going to be a fun one. Uh, as we do in every show, uh, we're going to chat with uh, you vis-a-vis the questions that you submitted on Twitter. We'll answer. I'll answer some of those. We'll also have our flashback segment, which tonight features uh, a 2003 fight between the great Joe Calzaghe and Brian Mitchell in a exciting 168-pound match um, that had great significance at that time uh, in the uh, super middleweight division. Uh, and we will have in our interview segment a gentleman that I really, really uh, like and enjoy as a broadcaster and as a man, uh, Brian Custer, the host of Showtime Championship Boxing and also a very fine broadcaster on Fox and other networks as well. So we've got a lot of interesting things to cover in this episode. And here to do it with me, as he was for our maiden voyage, my good friend Trip Mitchell. Trip, Hello. we are uh, on to show number two. And I think we already defied those people that said this wouldn't last. <laughs> well, I've gotten a call from Netflix to see if they can start to stream the show. You know, you could binge with us and go two hours. <laughs> we could be we could be binge watching um, like all the shows that everyone is, is watching. And I was on a uh, I was on a, uh, a, a, a bo- an interview with a boxing show. Um, I, I don't know. We could go we could go or so. And of course, they asked what I've been binge watching. And I believe I lost about 30% of the demographic of people that like me when I said that the one show I've been binging the most is Veronica Mars. Al, I'm a little worried. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. You're, they, were, they were very concerned about me as well. So, we're, you know, <laughs> maybe it's being delusional about being home and secluded into a small place. So, so along with the binge watching, we hope folks are watching this and uh, – uh, and enjoying us. And we've got, uh, even though th- there are no boxing matches going on, there are some things that are creating news. Well, we've got happy news. Yeah, some happy news, some unhappy news, and we'll start with the latter. Uh, Eddie Cotton passed away at the age of 72, a referee who'd done some big-time fights, inclu- including uh, Lennox Lewis-, Lewis Tyson from Memphis. Yeah, Eddie Cotton was a wonderful referee. And for those that knew Eddie Cotton, uh, he was a delightful man. Uh, he, he, he refereed many, many fights in Atlantic City, got his career started in 1992. Uh, and during all those years when there was really a lot of boxing in Atlantic City, he refereed many of those fights. You mentioned the, the um, Lewis Tyson fight also uh, down in Memphis where they brought down officials and he was the referee of that one. And um, Eddie, Eddie Cotton was uh, kind of specialized in doing the heavyweight fights. He was a big man uh, and he was able to kind of physically deal with the heavyweights, which is not easy for referees to do. And he did a number of uh, heavyweight fights feeding, fe- um, featuring the likes of Riddick Bowe, Andrew Galata, of course, Lewis Tyson, Holyfield, 
and uh, and made a name for himself in the sport because of that. Beyond the sport of boxing, he was uh, very active civically. He was a councilman in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, and was uh, very civically uh, involved in his community. So Eddie Cotton uh, passing away from the coronavirus uh, at age 72. And so that um, that terrible uh, affliction that's uh, afflicting our society uh, impacts the boxing world by uh, taking away from us a lovely man and a great referee in Eddie Cotton. So quick follow-up to that. You've worked so many fights over the years. Have there been any circumstances where a smaller referee gets in working a heavyweight fight and is just physically outmatched? Yeah, you know, there have been cases like that. Um, it's, it's an interesting question because if you're really a small person, you have to de- it's harder to deal with these, these bigger men. Um, and, uh, and trying to get in there and push them away and make sure that they follow the rules. And there have been times when, uh, when there have been smaller referees and they've had a difficult time physically moving these men. And depending on the cooperation level of the heavyweights, it can be, it can be a struggle. And now some positive news. Eddie Hearn is looking to do some fights pretty darn quickly, maybe an announcement the first week in May. He wants to get a site over in the UK that's going to be purpose-built for boxing and get going on some cards. That's wonderful news. Yeah, you know, he, he's the head of Matchroom Boxing, and they are one of the major promoters uh, in England and, in fact, in the world. And he his plan is that Probably starting sometime in late June or early July, he feels like he can use this facility, which you pointed out is being repurposed right now. Uh, He won't say where it's at. Um, uh, For boxing, he calls it a unique environment that will help um, provide for the safety of fighters and uh, those involved. Of course, those matches would not have audiences. They would not have crowds. And they would be uh, primarily uh, to provide uh, content for his network provider, which in his case is Sky Sports over in, uh, in the UK. And he feels like that would last for at least four to six weeks uh, when boxing comes back. And it would um, include multiple matches. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be hard for, for people to find matches to make because everyone's been on the shelf. Uh, and so he's going to, to do this. And, and, and hopefully make it a safe environment uh, for the boxers and for those involved. Boxing's in a unique position in that it is likely, along with other combat sports like uh, um, mixed martial arts, it may be in a slightly better position to come back a little quicker based on the, the safety questions and how we're doing overall in society because you only have two participants and uh, and they can be tested. You would, of course, test the official uh, officials involved, the, um, the the TV people, including the announcers, and uh, and that would you would be able, in theory, then to um, to put on what would be, in effect, studio TV boxing, even though it might be in a slightly bigger environment. So the chances of that of boxing coming back a little bit quicker than some of the other sports. Um, looks like a feasibility. And of course, if you are a promoter, we're going to have Bob Arum on our show next week. And he is talking uh, about that as well. And we'll be able to have 
a more uh, a fuller conversation with him about what he and Top Rank are planning. Now, is the rumor true that you've offered up one of your ballrooms downstairs at the Bernstein Mansion for Top Rank to do some fights? I did, and it's uh, a fully equipped ballroom. Um, occasionally, you know, taking a playbook from the or uh, something from the Jack Benny playbook from many years ago. <laughs> I, you know, I like to have side businesses, and so I I do weddings, bar mitzvahs, and. Uh, uh, and other affairs down there. So, yes, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to offer it up. It's nice to do those little extra things for the sport you love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Devin Haney got himself in a little controversy this week. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Devin Haney, the lightweight, uh, now has a lightweight championship, and he is a, a superb fighter. Uh, and part of that whole group that we talked about in the last show of lightweight fighters who are, you know, Teofimo Lopez, of course, Vasily Lomachenko, Gervonta Davis, Ryan Garcia, this group of talented people that we're hoping will all fight each other. Lomachenko and Lopez are scheduled to fight when things get back in order. Uh, and they were talking to Devin Haney about uh, Lomachenko, and uh, he gave a response similar to the one uh, Bernard Hopkins gave, uh, when he was getting ready to fight Joe Calzaghe, when he said kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, there's no white boy that's going to beat me. Um, <laughs> at the time, it, of course, engendered a little bit of, uh, 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 of controversy. But Bernard Hopkins, being Bernard Hopkins, he was able to do it in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way that diminished the, uh, the, the blowback that he received. Uh, Haney said essentially the same thing about uh, Lomachenko, and and it did engender uh, controversy, and some people thought it was a totally inappropriate statement, likening it to whether a white fighter would say that about an African-American or Latino fighter or any uh, person of color. And the interesting thing to me about all this is boxing is a sport that has, while of course you can never completely eliminate um, racism and uh, and prejudice from any part of our universe, unfortunately. Uh, but you can, uh, you can diminish it. And boxing has, for the most part, diminished it. The, the, the best line I've ever heard is that uh, the only color that really matters in boxing is the color green. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> That's the key color, uh, and so this this particular incident with uh, with Haney was one that, uh, especially you know, I think in the charged environment that we 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 live in and polarizing environment we live in, created some issues. He of course immediately came out with a statement saying he's he doesn't he's not a racist. He didn't mean it to be a a racial discriminatory comment, and uh, I'm sure that. Things will move on past it, but uh, but it's a reminder that uh, in every venue uh, we will be faced with people saying things that uh, certainly are ill-advised. I mean, I think he would agree, and uh, probably those around him would agree. It was probably an ill-advised comment, but nonetheless, he'll get past it, and he may, um, if if the cards are are lining up right for him, he will become a great great fighter in the lightweight division. Now. Uh, someday he hopes to be in a fight that will be featured on this show as a flashback.
And this week's flashback is a match that I did in 2003. It was, in fact, the second show that I did with Showtime when I moved over to that network from ESPN. And I would travel all the way to Wales to do the match between Joe Calzaghe and Brian Mitchell. Uh, it was at the International Arena in Cardiff, Wales, and it was the 13th defense of Joe Calzaghe's uh, super middleweight title. Uh, at, he had the WBO title at the time. And Brian Mitchell, who was a two-time former WBA champion, was thought to be a very, very good uh, potential opponent for uh, Joe Calzaghe. It was a dangerous fight. Uh, and uh, Mitchell was 29 years old at the time. Calzaghe was 31. And it was expected to be a thriller. It was exactly that. Uh, Calzaghe came out in the fight in a way that was even much more aggressive than normal for him. He threw caution to the wind. And in round one, he was battering Brian Mitchell. He, he was all over him. Uh, he was landing all kinds of shots, though many of the shots were wide, which is also a little bit uncharacteristic for Joe Calzaghe. He was getting all them in. Now, in round one, I said uh, that Joe Calzaghe was squaring himself up, uh, meaning turning his body to square himself up when he was throwing a lot of those wide hooks and wide le left hands. And I said this could be a problem for him as this fight wears on because he's leaving himself open to counter punches. Well, round one went into the books and we went to round two. Uh, and Joe Calzaghe was still on the attack and it was exciting his hometown crowd in Wales uh, and he was hurting Brian Mitchell until the fun stopped when a right hand from Brian Mitchell sent Calzaghe crashing to the canvas. A counter right hand is one of the ones I thought might come because of the way Calzaghe was fighting. Calzaghe went down, and he was genuinely hurt. It was not a flash knockdown. He got up. The next 30 seconds was trench warfare with both men battling away, landing just huge shot after huge shot. And Steve Albert on the call with me said, this is a candidate for round of the year. And it was indeed that. Then all of a sudden, uh, Calzaghe landed a big shot and sent Mitchell crashing to the canvas, uh, and Mitchell was really badly hurt. He got up. Again, it was uh, a Pier 6 brawl, but after Calzaghe had dealt out some more punishment, referee Dave Harris stepped in and stopped the fight. Probably the stoppage was a little bit premature. Uh, and, of course, here we have Calzaghe in his home uh, stadium with uh, a a referee from the UK, and Brian Mitchell and his team were none too happy about it. He was clearly in trouble and clearly hurt, but many believe the stoppage was a little bit premature. Probably Joe Calzaghe would have gotten him out of there at some point, but because Mitchell had shown he was dangerous, um, the premature stoppage caused some issues. And uh, and after the fight, they, they were very distressed and uh, voiced their protests about it. But nonetheless, Joe Calzaghe got what was for him uh, a, uh, an important victory. And that was a fight in which Calzaghe showed the kind of grit that everyone assumed he had. But getting up from that vicious knockdown 
and being so badly hurt and coming back to win in an exciting fashion kind of set in motion, even at age 31, a final part of Joe Calzaghe's career that was more impressive probably than even anything that preceded it. Three years later, we would be back in in, uh, the UK, this time at the MEN Arena in Manchester, where he would fight another American, Jeff Lacey, in a fight that most uh, pundits, especially the pundits in America, thought Jeff Lacey was going to win. Lacey was at that time at 168, a big puncher who was knocking people out. And Lacey and his folks were confident that he was going to go over to uh, the UK and knock out Joe Calzaghe. And remember Calzaghe at age 34 at that point, well into his career, could have been a veteran that was ripe for an upset. Turned out to be just the opposite. Joe Calzaghe fought maybe his best fight of his career, dominated Jeff Lacey, then moved up to light heavyweight and beat uh, veterans uh, Roy Jones Jr. and uh, Bernard Hopkins before his career would end. And Joe Calzaghe retired uh, with a 46-0 record and was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And the catalyst, I think, for him starting to get real recognition uh, on this side of the pond in America and maybe worldwide was, in fact, the flashback that we did on this show here, the 2003 fight against Brian Mitchell. That was kind of the beginning of Joe Calzaghe. Uh, getting an impressive win that would lead to him getting the proper uh, attention and accolades uh, that he should get. Um, A big part of our show is the interviews that we bring you each week. And this week, we get to talk to a gentleman who is uh, a very special man. He is not only uh, the host of Showtime Championship Boxing. He's also a play-by-play boxing announcer who has done boxing on Fox, FS1, uh, did Broadway boxing, uh, a series in New York. And of course, he's the voice of college football and basketball for uh, Fox and a very, very talented man and a gracious one as well. So here's our interview with Brian Custer. Brian, thank you for uh, joining us on this, our second episode of uh, the podcast. And I'm so happy to have you on because um, you and I get to work together at Showtime, but we, but we don't get a chance on the air to have these kind of conversations. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, we always say some of the stuff that we talk about off the air, if we could talk about it on the air, it'd be, it'd be the best stuff that I think television's ever seen. <laughs> and, and as a group between you... Mauro Ronaldo, Pauli Malignaggi, and me, we are pretty much uh, as diverse and, and, and interesting a group as you can have. We all come at life from a slightly different vantage point. Oh, you're so right about that. I mean, listen, Mauro, I always call him like a beautiful mind. Some of the yeah. pop, pop culture things that he knows and then references is great. Pauli is just one of a kind. I mean, from <laughs> you, you watch this guy, you wouldn't know that he is as conservative as he is. And some of his views are, are, are somewhat humorous. Yeah. And, uh, but, hey, look, he, he, he is very adamant about what he believes in. Pauli is very uh, passionate. And there's nothing... You're so diverse. I mean, listen, you can talk boxing, you can talk any kind of sport, and a great singer, which I think a lot of people know. 
Uh, but, you know, listen, I love our group because we have a yeah. lot of laughs every time we get together. We do. And, you know, uh, broadcasting for people that have not been involved, and let me use this as an opportunity to point out that for those of you that are, un if you're unfamiliar with Brian's journey in broadcasting, um, you know, a uh, he has done every sport imaginable just about and has been a sports anchor in both Columbus, Ohio and Dallas, Texas for many years. Uh, and has done boxing, not only boxing, but basketball, football for Fox. Um, and you've worked with lots of different teams and you've worked with different people. And broadcasting is great and you can get by and do a really good broadcast. But if you genuinely are interested in the people you're broadcasting with, it makes it better, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know this because you've been in the business a long time as well. There's nothing worse when you're with someone every week, uh, every month, and you really don't get along off the air. Mm -hmm. And it could be the worst. And that, I think yeah. to us, I think that's what really makes our broadcast sing is that we really genuinely have an affection for one another off the air uh, as friends. And I think it, it reflects itself on the air. And you know, I remember when I first started uh, in the business and uh, my producer he was the coordinating producer at a television station when I was a sports anchor. And he told me, he said, look, we got a great cast. Um, you're a good host. He said, the best advice I can give you is if you make your colleague shine, the broadcast is going to shine. And trust me, eventually you will get the recognition. You may not think so, but you will. And that was probably the best piece of advice I gotten. And I've always tried to take that whatever job I've had, is to make sure that my colleagues look really, really good because if that's the case, uh, the whole broadcast is going to look really, really good, and we'll all get our piece of recognition. That Well said. And I always think of you as the perfect combination of point guard and shooting guard when you need to be. And that's yeah. how you, you distribute the ball, but you're capable of getting some shots as well, and you're, you've done that to a T. Now, you – you, while you're in the hosting role now, you um, you started out your boxing journey uh, doing the Broadway boxing shows in New York. Uh, and you, I saw a comment on Twitter. You said you kind of got interested in doing boxing by watching one of the Showtime broadcasts. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, you know, Al Bern, I'll, I'll credit Al Bernstein. <laughs> oh, I get the credit. Steve Albert uh, for really pushing me towards – uh, following my passion. And I'll never forget, it was 2005, yeah, right. uh, a sports anchor in Dallas. And I had just gotten off the air because we had done the news at 10 uh, central time there in Dallas. And I had driven home and I knew that you guys were on. I was like, oh, I got to get home. Got to watch this fight. And, you know, Chico was such an exciting fighter. And so I'm sitting here watching uh, Corrales and Castillo and that fight First of all, you guys were phenomenal describing the action. And, you know, and that when it came to that 10th round and how Corrales pulled out that victory, I said to myself, and I, I, I distinctly saying to myself, you know what, I love this sport, and I'm going to get into boxing as a profession after that fight. That's intriguing. And, of course, you would ultimately, uh, as I said, when you moved to New York, you got uh, on Broadway boxing, and that gave you, uh, which is a, a series, in New York that is syndicated. Um, and 
that was a great um, chance, I think, for you to do it as an entrance to the sport and learn the sport and while announcing with Steve Farhood, who, of course, is a wonderful partner. Absolutely. I mean, it was only a year later. A year after that fight, we ended up, as a family, I got the offer to come to New York. Uh, I was working at a sports, regional sports network there, uh, here called SNY. And, yeah, they had Broadway boxing and, you know, met Lou DiBella and started uh, calling the fights there. And I was working with Steve Farhood. And it was great because it gave me the opportunity not only to call boxing, um, but, you know, I got the opportunity to see a lot of the fighters that are at a championship level now that were really just up and coming then. And they were coming through New York. And so uh, that was it was a great opportunity for me to get my feet wet. And the one thing I love about this, Al, is that we can finally come clean and let America know that's when I met you. And I don't know if you're going to tell them the real story about Al because people right. love Al Bursi. Oh, he's the sweetest guy. He's just, uh, But you ought to tell them the real story of how we met and how you gave me the Heisman and stiffed me <laughs> as we met that night at Broadway Boxing. All right, I'll tell it from my vantage point, and you, you can tell it from yours. So I was there because Mara Wernalo was there. I was, was doing an audition tape with me to, to, on the Broadway boxing uh, shows. He was auditioning for his Showtime job that he would ultimately get, and I was doing that. And I was kind of focused on that. And I did, was introduced to Brian, but I was so focused on that, I did, I believe I may have hi-hatted him just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> or the Heisman as, as <laughs> and, and the good part about it from your standpoint is you have never let me forget about it. <laughs> you me every single day since then. You're absolutely right. We were doing a fight there at the Roseland Ballroom <laughs> right there in Midtown Manhattan. And I never forget because Steve Farhood said, hey, uh, the guys from Showtime are coming over. They're doing an audition. I said, oh, who's coming? And he said, well, this guy Moro Ronaldo is auditioning in Alberta. I said, man, I love Alberta. I cannot wait to meet him. He said, oh, as soon as he comes in, he goes, Al's the nicest guy. As soon as he comes in, just go right up to him and say hello. And you guys walked in. Gordon Hall came over. We said hello, this and that, that. And then you come scurrying through. And I said, hey, how, how are you? I'm Brian Custer. So great. You, nice to meet you. And you just walked right on. I said, oh, my God, this guy. What the heck is this clown? Yeah, I, I was a little focused on the task at hand, I have to say. But luckily, we've gotten past that. And uh, yes. a good thing. <laughs> so you, it's interesting that you, in the sport of boxing, there, you know, you've uh, become known for two different things. You're As a host on the Showtime show, which is a very high-profile uh, position, and you've done plenty of play-by-play -play on boxing. Um, what... Do you enjoy doing the play-by-play -play as much as you enjoy hosting? Yeah, I do. I mean, um, you, you, and as you know this too, there's there's nothing like uh, calling the action when there's just a nonstop fight. Yeah. And, you know, listen, it was great doing that at Broadway Boxing, seeing some of the guys who are at the club level trying to cut their teeth and um, rise up through the ranks. And then that led to me getting the call and, and ended up being at Showtime and, and doing the Showtime Extreme fights. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's, I always laugh now when I, I think about some of those times where 
Colin fights for Deontay Wilder and Errol Spence and those right. guys are on Showtime Extreme. And now look at them now. And, you know, that led to uh, doing fights for Golden Boy Live, which right. were on FS1. And uh, it, it, is, it is always great because, you know, I can re- reflect on these guys when they were up and coming to now that they're at the championship level. And I do. I love the skill. I love, listen, I love hosting. I love working with you guys and watching you guys work. And then on the other hand, too, it, there's something invigorating. Your yeah. juices get flowing when you're actually calling the action as well. Right. And you're so used to that with other sports. Uh, you do a great job on football and basketball for Fox. And speaking of that, when you're there doing um, events with people, and I found this – in the times when I used to go out and cover uh, other sports for Sports Center, was I, when I was at ESPN, I would go there and I'd be doing an interview with Alex Rodriguez or somebody like that. And all they wanted to talk to me about before we did the interview was boxing. Do you get that with a lot of the sports people that you work with and other sports personalities? Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to say it was not last year, the year before. Uh, I had to do a Miami Dolphins Chicago uh, Bears game and it was in Miami and so uh, we were going uh, to the player uh, meetings where we had you know you have meetings obviously with the with the players right after practice on a Friday and we went to practice and then afterwards we were going in there and I'll never forget one of the guys was uh, uh, one of the PR guys from the Dolphins was like hey Brian you know listen uh, Ryan Tannehill is going to be coming in here uh, we're going to have the running back coming in here. And listen, you know, they may, they may be a little standoffish with you at the very beginning because they haven't uh, seen you around uh, calling many of their, uh, our games. So don't worry about that. I'll be in the room and I'll help ease anything because, you know, they're, they're kind of skittish when they see new faces. I said, okay, fine, no problem. And it was so funny that as soon as we got in there, Ryan Tannehill walks in, he sits down and he looks over at me and goes, Hey, Fury uh, Wilder, who do you think would win? <laughs> Joshua or Wilder, who do you think would win? Man, I love boxing. So you're calling our game? This is great. Hey, so let me ask you this. Is Anthony Joshua as big as I think he – and that's all he wanted to talk about was boxing. What's, and, and it was so funny, the PR guy sitting there scratching his head like, holy cow, <laughs> I've never seen this guy act like this before. But it, it, it is it is amazing how whether it is college football, whether it's college basketball, whether it's the NFL, you walk into an arena and the first thing they want to talk about, say, hey, let's talk boxing. Let, I, what about this guy? What about this guy? Because it is it is one of those sports that all of these guys watch. Yeah, it seems like people in other sports have always had an affinity for boxing and they and they really enjoy it. Um, so you were talking about some of the fighters and, uh, you know, that you alluded to getting to see some of the fighters come their way up. And, and we get to chronicle on, uh, you know, on our show, uh, mostly fighters that are at the championship level. But, and our Showbox show does a great job with the fighters coming up. We also see some, like you said, on your show, uh, the uh, extreme show that was airing prior to it, you would see uh, prospects. So... In boxing, there are several divisions that are really loaded with top contenders and champions. What's your – name me one or two of your favorite divisions in boxing that you think is really loaded with talent. Well, that's a great question. Um, 
I think right off the top for me, the welterweight division, um, you know, when I think of, you know, the Errol Spence, the Terrence Crawford, Danny Garcia, Keith Thurman, Sean Port, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. And it is, and now Mikey Garcia, you know, says he wants to fight there regularly. I just love that division because it's just loaded with top names. And then you've got guys like Duran Ennis coming up yeah. the pipeline as well. So it's like, that division is just a landmine of just great fighters. Uh, and then that, you can take an, uh, another step up to, you know, listen, 154. Yeah. Uh, 154 is just as deep from uh, the Charlos um, to Julian Williams, Rosario, who just got to win, Jared Hurd, you know, Erickson Lubin. You can just name fighter after fighter after fighter. Um, the, the, to me, those two divisions – uh, I I, just, I love them. I absolutely yeah. love them. And yeah, heck, even 168 is, is another one that's becoming very competitive. Yeah, there's a number of divisions. One of the misnomers, I think, is that people think somehow boxing, the depth in boxing is is low. And I don't really think that's true. And the lightweight division, which we, you know, we've, we talked about on last week's podcast um, with Ryan Garcia and Gervonta Davis, yeah. Lomachenko and Teofimo Lopez and all the rest, um, you know, just a great division as well. So there is no question there's depth in, uh, in boxing for sure. Um, you've had a, a, something that you and I share in common, which is not the best thing to share in common, but you were a great help to me when I uh, suffered prostate cancer about yeah a year and a half ago, two years ago. And the reason for that is you at a very young age, much younger than anyone would ever expect to be afflicted with, you were afflicted with prostate cancer. And uh, your grace in fighting it, uh, which we got to see firsthand, was very special. Uh, and you not only got through it, but turned it into something where you could be positive and help others. Man, it was it – was, it was, uh... You know, I certainly don't wish that on anybody. Uh, it was eye-opening. Uh, I think it changed me as a person, as a man. I think whenever you face your mortality, you can you can only change as a person. And I wanted to change in a positive way. Uh, I was, you know, 41, almost turning 42 when I got the diagnosis. I mean, and, you know, I work out, you know, at least five times a week, yeah. uh, martial arts, spar, all kinds of stuff. And... When he told me, my doctor told me, just doing a regular, my annual checkup, uh, when he told me that I had cancer, that it was aggressive, and that I needed, you know, surgery immediately, and I said, wow, surgery, doc, I've never had it in my life. Can we do another route? Let's try something. He said, absolutely, we can try whatever you want. He said, but as aggressive as yours is going, uh, if you do not go the surgery route, you'll probably be dead within a year. I was just floored. And, uh, you know, the thing, I had three boys, so that was the only thing I was thinking about at that time was, you know, why, am I going to see them grow? Am I going to ever see them graduate high school or get married or anything? And, uh, wow, I mean, having surgery like that and, you know, you got tested every three months, even after surgery, and I thought I was past it. And then I want to say a couple of years ago, was, you know, he – he kept telling me, hey, look, I want you to come back because yours was so aggressive. That's why I'm testing you every three months. And when he started telling me that the numbers were creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, and if they got to a certain point, we were going to have to do something. We got to that point, and he was like, look, we got to do something. We got to do some 
you know, some high grade radiation. And I, 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 I'm not gonna lie, I was devastated. I mean, I, I felt like I was past it. I had gotten past that hump. And he told me, you know, you're gonna have to do 25 bouts of that. And we were in the midst of traveling. I know we were going to go to England and all kinds of stuff. And so he was like, listen, you, know, you may have to come here to the facility at 6 a.m., you know, do this treatment for a good 25 minutes, go home, and then you need to try to get a nap in and then get on your plane and go to wherever you need to go. And that's kind of what I did. But, I, you know, I'll give Showtime a lot of credit because, you know, our bosses there were very understanding. And they say, hey, look, if you need to miss a fight, don't worry about it. Uh, but they were very understanding and guys like you and, uh, you know, it almost brings tears to my eyes. You know, they were call you guys calling me, checking on me, making sure I was okay. And it was rough because it was just, I was, I was going through a lot of fatigue, not only from the treatments, but traveling so much. Yeah. It's and not it easy. was like, I mean, yeah, it was not easy. It was like from not only our fights, but I, at that time, I think I was doing football or basketball too. Right. So I was on the road a lot. And uh, it would like come back, do a treatment, get back on the road, come back, do a treatment, get back on the road. And it was it was a lot. And you, as I said, you 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 fulfilled your responsibilities. Yeah. Job while you were doing it, which is remarkable and got through it. Thank goodness. And you've used that as kind of a platform to to really tell people. I know you've worked with the prostate cancer organizations uh, to try and you know, be a cautionary tale for everyone that they need to be checked on a regular basis. And you know what, Al, this may sound crazy to you. When I got the diagnosis and everything, I was embarrassed. Um, mm. I felt ashamed. And mm. the last thing I wanted was for anybody to know. I didn't want a single soul knowing anything. And my doctor, Dr. Uh, David Samadhi, who performed my surgery, sat me down and he showed me the numbers and showed how prostate cancer was really ravaging uh, black men. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, basically, you know, seven out of 10 black men would be more susceptible to getting prostate cancer than anyone else. He was like, I need you. I need someone like you as public as you are to come forward and tell people of color, number one, they need to go to the doctor because yeah. that's something we don't do regularly. And then number two, on why and how this disease is affecting our community and that if you do go to the doctor and get checked early on, you can nip it in the bud and live a long life, healthy life. And I was like, I don't want no one to know. I don't want, I don't want the networks to know. Maybe they'll try to get rid of me if they know that I have cancer. I mean, I was really embarrassed and was hesitant. And after we sat down, I, I remember coming home talking with my wife about it and she said, you know, you need to do it. He's right. And um, and that was the day I decided, OK, I'll, I'll go public with it and, you know, do what and turn it into, as you talked about, a platform to, to try to get more men of color. A, go to the doctor yeah. and B, let them know that this isn't a life. This isn't a death sentence no, you can live no. with this. You just got to change your lifestyle. Eat better. Uh, be a uh, be a more active. And, and that's kind of what I did. And that's I remember when you told me you had it. I was like, listen, bro, you're going to be okay. You know what? You're, you're a strong guy. You're going to be all right. And, you know, I, I almost, it was, it was almost a, a thing where I wanted to cry because I just felt like, you know, it's one thing for me to go through it. But then when you, you have a friend that tells you that, you're just like, I, I hate this disease. And, and um, so I'm, I'm just happy. All, everything went well with you. Your treatments went fine. Um, but that, that was the thing I wanted to get out to everybody was 
go get checked. Yeah. It isn't a death sentence. And uh, you can live a, a long, healthy life, even if you do get diagnosed. With yeah. yeah. And you've been very active, proactive and eloquent in doing that to people. And sometimes people are judged by what they do publicly, but I can tell people that privately you were so uh, encouraging and uh, always gave an ear to me. Uh, and that that's the true measure of a person when they can do that for people around them. Uh, and we're happy that both of us are, are yeah. doing well. Amen. Um, you know, as we finally, as we go back in now after this period of uh, being isolated because of the pandemic and, this, and the world of sports stopping literally, which is, you know, surrealistic. Um, as we get back with the sport of boxing, what's your general take on how it will feel and what, and I don't even know if we can even verbalize this, how you think it'll look when we get back and, and, and how will the sport kind of generate, regenerate the excitement? Yeah, you know, because it, 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 even with all sports, um, you know, I just heard Doc, I heard Dr. Fauci just say uh, today that even if sports comes back, that, you know, fighters or even athletes are going to have to be quarantined mm -hmm. and uh, no, no fans. Uh, so I think, you know, with boxing, it, it may be a little bit easier than the other sports, only for the simple fact all you have is just the two fighters and the right. referee in the ring. You know, obviously we would have our us there trying to broadcast that, but it should be a little bit easier than, let's say, football or basketball, where you have so many players, especially football, basketball, and, you know, put, trying to put all those guys in a hotel and trying to keep them in one location. So I would think it's going to be, for, even for sports in general, it's going to be a new normal. And yeah. that new normal is, you know, people are going to be be scared. Some people are going to be scared about, hey, am I should I even be in a full arena with people I don't know until we get a vaccine, until we get something that we know that can conquer this virus. I think all sports is going to be the new normal of empty arenas, very low arenas, uh, and just the necessary essential people. Uh, who have to broadcast that, but I'm, I'm sure all of us would even have to be tested as well, just to make sure. Yeah, no, that, that was well put. And we will all get back to, at some point, um, yeah. certain things will return and uh, right. we'll, we'll get back to normal. And, and getting through these times, uh, we're all trying to do the best we can to stick together. And uh, one of the ways you do that is with people that uh, care about you and uh, help you and you sir are one of those people and I can tell that the, the uh, boxing public that you um, uh, you make a difference wherever you are and it probably always have in your broadcast career even at the time when I was hi-hatting you didn't know you <laughs> you were that kind of person <laughs> well, you know, listen again that goes to the beauty of our relationship and you know hey we, we talk we've talked we besides doing this you know, we've talked on the phone. Hey, how's the family? Yeah. How's your wife? How's your son? Everybody okay? Okay, just wanted to check on you, make sure everything is okay. And and that's, I hope that we do. We start doing this a lot more often, just as a people, for people that you care about, because we get so busy sometimes. Yeah. You forget, you forget sometimes. I'll just reach out to your friends or family. Right. Just to say hello. And that may be a lesson we learned from this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Brian Custer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, 
you've uh, added immeasurably to the Showtime Boxing Show that uh, in the years that you have come on and uh, added a lot to, and for me as a sports fan, you've added a lot because I am a huge college football and basketball fan. And so your presence on those games has added a lot to me. People don't know, don't know this, but I tell you what, a lot of times, you know, some people will say, hey man, you had a great take when you were calling this game. And I, I should give you credit, but I'll, I'll, maybe I'll say it now. I'll say, well, I really got that in my mind. I got that from Al Bernstein when ah. we were talking about this, but I did say it on air. So yeah, I do steal Al Bernstein's takes sometimes and I spew them out on the air. I don't know. I don't know if you need me for college basketball and football, but I am a fan. Uh, Brian, thank you so, so much. And you keep safe with your family and uh, hopefully we'll be back on the air pretty soon. I look forward to it. I love you, Al Bernstein. All right. Take care, Brian. So that was our chat with uh, Brian Custer. And um, Tripp, I know uh, you've had the pleasure of working with a lot of people, and it's always more fun when you're working with people that you find interesting and, uh, and, and our team players, and that really describes Brian Custer. Well, you guys, when you watch your shows, you can tell you all like each other. And that... It, when you see a broadcast crew that doesn't, it's kind of fun to watch from a perverse end standpoint. And you've probably named four or five guys you haven't liked to work with. We could do yeah, that Yeah, very. It's a show. small group, but there are a couple. <laughs> okay. And I love the fact that he uh, gave you some garbage for blowing him off the first time you met him. Yeah. That was, you know, it's so funny. And, and, and of course, he is happy. Every time we, we have these big dinners where we all get together and Brian is happy to to tweak me and bring that up because while we all like each other, we, of course, being men, naturally, we all give each other a lot of, uh, a, lot, a hard time frequently. And that one I hear on a constant basis. And I was so focused on Mauro Ronaldo was, I was doing a, you know, he was doing his uh, audition tape for, um, for, to come on top rank or on Showtime Boxing. And it was, it, I was so focused on that that I, I wasn't quite as, uh, uh, jovial as I might have been with Brian but you know he the good thing the good thing is he's got something to hang over my head for the rest of my life so that's always a plus well if when next time I talk to Brian I'll tell him that you never talked to me for three years and I was working with you so he might not be alone yeah there were certain (laughs) signals you would have to give me and and like a number of actors like Wolford Brimley who I got to know really well when he was on set nobody could look him directly in the eye and talk to him he had a rule and so that was the rule I pretty much, the unwritten rule we had. <laughs> okay, we've got some great questions from some of our, tw- or some of your Twitter followers. The first, Prince Nazim Hamid, how great a fighter was he? Yeah, that's an interesting question. That was asked by one of our, uh, the folks. And, you know, uh, Nazim Hamed was a, a WBO champ. He had 14 title defenses, which is pretty extraordinary. And he beat some good fighters like Wayne McCullough and Kevin uh, Kelly. Um, uh, and did have a long and very good run as champion. He was, of course, very colorful, very arrogant, I think you can honestly say. Uh, I don't think that that's a misuse of the word. Um, and he dared you not to like him. Uh, and if you're a fan of his, of course, you loved his antics and his, his great entrances and the way he would uh, uh, showboat. But if you didn't like him, that would annoy you. And so when he finally got his comeuppance against Marco Antonio Barrera, uh, which was the second to the last fight he would ever had, he only fought one time after that, 
Of course, some people were delighted uh, that, that that happened. It, lost in all that is the central question, which is what the the uh, that questioner asked. Just how good was he? He was very unorthodox. He made all kinds of uh, basic mistakes that should have cost him in fights, but it ended up, even though he did get knocked down and, he, and it did cost him in some fights defensively, he was always able to use his uh, overall athletic ability and power to win the day. I would say, if you want to look at it objectively, Hamed was a very, very good fighter, and I may get some, uh, uh, some blowback on this one. I would not put him in the great category. I would put him in the excellent category. Okay, that good to hear. Another question: Who during your whole career was the most exciting fighter that you ever covered? Yeah, this one is interestingly somebody who I maybe did one of his fights. I, I for the most part, this fighter, the great Arturo Gatti, uh, fought most of his fights uh, on HBO. Uh, and and a couple other networks before that, uh, and I didn't do uh, very many of his fights, which means that most of the fights that Arturo Gatti was in, I was watching purely as a fan, which made it even more kind of exciting because I didn't have the worry of uh, of doing my job during it. From 1995 to 2003, he was in more exciting fights than I would say almost any boxer has been in for the last four decades. Um, even before he had his great trilogy with Mickey Ward, his two fights with Ivan Robinson, his fight with Gabrielis, his two fights with Tracy Harris Patterson, his fight with Wilson Rodriguez. Go back on YouTube, take a look at those fights. Every single one of them was a war. In every single one of them, there were moments where you said, okay, Arturo Gatti, now he didn't win all those fights. But there were, even in the ones he won, he, he, there were moments where you said, okay, he's never going to get past this and win this fight. And in some cases, uh, he did. And then to top all that off, he got to the Ward Trilogy, which is one of the most exciting uh, trilogies ever in the sport of boxing. Probably not the best because he and Mickey Ward were very good fighters, but they weren't on A-level fighters. Uh, but uh, Arturo Gatti, wildly exciting, certainly the most exciting fighter during the time I've been announcing. Okay, another question, very interesting. Since you've been covering boxing 40 years, you've done some great fights. What is the fight that you didn't do that you wish you had? Yeah, I'll say it's three fights because it involves the same two people. And I, I've already alluded to this gentleman uh, in a previous uh, uh, statement here today. Uh, Marco Antonio Barrera fought Eric Morales three times. And it is what I believe to be the best trilogy in the history of boxing. And I say that advisedly because, of course, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier had a trilogy that in fights one and three produced two of the most exciting uh, and important fights in the history of the sport. Though the second fight in the middle was good, it wasn't quite as good as one and three. But here's the thing about the Eric Morales, uh, Marco Antonio Barrera trilogy. Every single fight was spectacular. Barrera would end up winning the series two to one. But re I, 
the same statement applies to that trilogy that I used when I was doing the third fight between Israel Vasquez and Rafael Marquez. Uh, about round 10 or 11, I said, you know, it is literally almost immaterial who ends up winning this fight or getting the decision. Uh, it's important to the fighter and their fans, but at the end of the day, no one could come out of this uh, with less credit because they lost. And I would say the same thing about uh, the Morales Barrera trilogy was staggering. Both men at the top of their games for all all three of those fights, and both Hall of Famers. And uh, what they did was remarkable. And trilogies are very tough. Just look at Godfather. They went two for three on the Godfather. <laughs> that, exactly. <laughs> yes. Trying to do a good trilogy is not the easiest thing in the world. And our final question, Al: What's your favorite venue to call a fight from? Yeah, uh, I thought that was a good question from one of our uh, the folks on Twitter. I'm going to narrow it to two, uh, and even that is, you know, there are so many venues that have been that have been fun and great to do fights from. One is uh, the outdoor arena at Caesar's Palace, where so many of the great fights were held in the 1980s. Um, it was, you know, a, a venue that was created from whole cloth. It was in the parking lot outside their tennis complex. And what made it so special was you'd be out there under the stars in what normally was always really good weather. And, and, and it was just a, a tremendous atmosphere for those fights. And, and I'm not even a person that believes in outdoor venues. I, really, my theory is boxing is a sport meant to be done indoors. Unless you can put 50,000 people there, if it's anything under 24,000 I say it belongs inside. And yet here I am talking about one of my favorite venues that is outdoors. Um, and it was an extraordinary place to do boxing. The, I would also add my second choice along with it was the MEN Arena, which has had some name changes at various times in uh, Manchester, uh, England. I did Ricky Hatton Costa Zoo there. I did Jeff Lacey and, and Joe Calzaghe and... Part of what makes that arena special, you know, it's an arena, so some could say, well, you know, what makes that so different? What makes that place different is the fans. Um, I've never seen such passionate fans uh, as I saw in that arena. And the sound reverberates there in a way that uh, is just extraordinary. And so when I would go over to do fights at the MEN Arena uh, in Manchester, it was always a special experience. And... Um, and, and I really enjoyed doing them over there. Well, that's fantastic. And Caesars was fun because the commute wasn't too bad for you. That's another thing. I could, you know, jumpy jolly, get, get in my car and go down there and, uh, and do those fights. Although for a part of the time, I wasn't living in Vegas, but most of the time I was. And uh, yeah, it was really an extraordinary thing. And that walk from the casino through the pool into the past the tennis complex and to the uh, to the parking lot was, you know, just, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was very special. Well, we're uh, happy that you joined us for this edition of uh, Albert Cena Unplugged Unboxing. Um, my thanks to Trip Mitchell. Thanks to Lee for doing a great job of uh, producing and this show and guiding us through uh, what we've done. And uh, next week, we're going to have some fun because we are going to be visited by Bob Arum as our special guest. Uh, and uh, you can count on Bob always for some interesting and fun statements. And uh, it'll be fun for me to talk to him uh, because I have such a long and shared history with him uh, in fights that I 
did that involved his company. And of course, we're going to deal with uh, the issue of what we're currently dealing with and how boxing comes back from it uh, and what the the immediate future of boxing uh, will look like. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and we will see you next time.